We're working our way through the pastoral epistles, and we're somewhere around a snail's pace at this point. We've come through chapter 1, and Paul has warned Timothy of the danger that's there in the church, of the false teaching that's there, and his responsibility to confront it. And he has called out the error of their ways, those who are teaching false doctrine, wanting to be experts. You remember this if you've been with us at all. Wanting to be experts in the law, wanting to be known as those who had secret knowledge, secret information, and all the while wasting the time of God's people and actually drifting and swerving away from the faith. So here they were, desiring to be known as experts in the law, as those who would be held up with respect, and instead they were chasing myths and endless genealogies through the Old Testament, having secret messages, allegories, hidden meanings in the genealogies, and really turning people away from the simplicity of the gospel and the faith in which the apostles had given them and which was handed down through the ministry of even the Apostle Paul. Timothy, if you don't remember, is the pastor at Ephesus. Paul left him there to serve and to establish leadership and to purify the church with teaching and doctrine. He's a young man. He's probably in his mid-30s, as far as we can guess, depending on when he started his travels with Paul. This is Paul's son in the faith. He loved Timothy in a special way, and we have two letters devoted just to Timothy as personal letters, personal correspondence from the Apostle Paul. This letter is tucked at the beginning of the pastoral epistles, which include both letters to Timothy and the letter to Titus. And those are Paul's letters to those who are pastoring. That's why they're called pastoral epistles. Uh, They were given for those who were leading the church, and they lay out the responsibilities and the expectation of those who provide leadership to the church. And we've been studying them as an accountability checklist and as an opportunity to set our expectations in line right here at the outset of our ministry at Grace Church with God's Word. What is it that we are to be about? What is it that we as a church are to be about? And how can we be sure to know that we are on the path, the direction, the way that God has laid out for us? And we can come to the pastoral epistles and gain quite a bit of insight into our responsibility. On the heels of his warning, Paul encouraged Timothy with his own testimony of the gospel of grace, that Christ had indeed saved him, set him apart, that the Lord had come to save sinners. And Paul could not think, in verse 15, of anyone else who is a worse sinner than himself. And we would all testify that way. If we've seen our sin for what it is, it is hard to think of others who would be as wicked in their hearts as we are. And Paul certainly felt that way as one who had received grace from the Lord. He finishes this section in chapter 1 by reminding Timothy of his charge, that he is to confront error, he is to stand for the truth and protect the truth, And he encourages them that they wage the good warfare at the church. That they fight the good fight. That's a familiar term in our New Testament epistles. Then that brings us now to the priorities of what the church is to be about. What is it that Timothy is to be encouraging the church to be about? He has clearly diagnosed the problems and what they are to be concerned not to be a part of. 
And now Paul turns his attention to the positive in chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, and speaks of what the church is to be about. And the first priority is prayer. And we spent all of last Sunday evening examining verses 1 and 2, where Paul calls the corporate body to pray for the salvation of all people, and to pray for the salvation especially of their leaders, their civil leaders, their authorities in this life. We know because of the context following the verses that come after verses 1 and 2 that it was in fact evangelistic prayer. And the results of that prayer are marked out in verse 2 that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So it has immediate consequences on us to pray for those who are in authority and leadership over us. Our government, whether it's national or civil, citywide, statewide, whatever it may be, those who have authority over us, our prayer for their good and for their salvation benefits us. It affects us immediately. And it provides the opportunity for us to lead a peaceful and a quiet life. That's not a bashful and fearful life of the gospel, nor is that a life free from persecution because we speak the truth. But it is a quiet and a peaceful existence in a world that hates the message of the gospel. And we spent a little bit of time remembering that these folks last week, these folks in verses 1 and 2, were under the leadership of who? Who was their leader, their highest leader in an earthly sense that they were to be praying for? Do you remember? Nero, that's right. They were under the leadership of Nero, or we could say the tyranny of Nero, a madman who killed people needlessly, who hated Christians, who waged one of the greatest focused persecutions on the church. And yet they're called to pray for all kings and all who are in high positions. And the result on their lives is peace and quiet in their existence. And that's further explained by being godly and dignified, reflecting the character of God and being intentional and careful in their actions. Okay? All that flowed as a result of praying for people to be saved and praying for their leaders to have God's blessing and God's salvation on their lives. And that brings us to verse 3, and we're going to study tonight all the way through verse 7. But for the sake of review, let's begin in verse 1, and we'll read these verses together and then try to unpack these together. First of all, then, Paul says, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, that is morally good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I, Paul says, was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. This is the word of the Lord that we'll study this evening. Now tonight, let me begin by warning you that we are in potentially dangerous waters in these verses. 
there's a potential danger here that I'm concerned about in my own heart. I've seen it already this week. And I'm concerned that at face value tonight, you all will be tempted in the same way. We have a potential danger of judging the judge, of passing our law on the lawgiver, of sitting in scrutiny of God. And when we read passages like this, which are difficult for us to understand, which take us into the proverbial deep end of the theological pool, we've been thrown into the water, and our natural instinct is to make this work in our own human minds, to reconcile God, the infinite one, with our finite mind. So be careful, even before we begin, to submit your heart and your mind to his word, to examine it, to be Bereans, to take what is said tonight and take it back to the word of God to see if it in fact is true, and then to submit to the truth that we find in the Word of God. There could be no greater need at the beginning of this little study, and we're only going to be here for another half an hour, but there could be no greater need before we get into this half an hour than for us to remind ourselves that He is God, and we're not. Period. He's God. He sits in His throne. He sits on His throne in heaven, and He does as He wills. Psalm 115 tells us, And we're not. We are His created beings. He is the Creator. He is Lord and we are His slaves. This is a serious business that we're going to be in tonight and it's a difficult section. I called David this afternoon at 4 something and I had a pit in my stomach because of the weight of what we're saying. We're laying out some groundwork here that is a difficult understanding for us. and Maybe you've never even considered it, but this is heavy, heavy territory that we're moving into. Last week we examined the call, and that was the easy part. We're called to be praying for the salvation of all people, even those who are over us. And tonight we're going to examine the reasons. There are three of them. We're going to examine the reasons why we are to be about global evangelistic prayer. So Paul is going to back up his call for us to be praying as a church for all people and for kings and rulers and those who are in high positions over us. He's going to back it up with three very distinct reasons why we are to be about this kind of prayer and this kind of lifestyle. These are not easy. This first one is the most difficult, take the most of our time, but I trust they're simple for us to understand at the surface level. Reason number one, that we are to be about global evangelistic prayer as a church and as a people Why are you to be praying the way verse 1 and 2 calls you to pray? Reason number one is the limitless nature of God's compassion. The limitless nature of God's compassion. God's compassion, His heart is limitless. Let's begin in verse 3 and examine this for just a few moments. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, first of all, let's deal with verse 3. Our prayer is good, it is the right thing to do, and it is pleasing to God. So, if you've ever thought, am I ever bringing joy? My life, I struggle with sin, I battle with 
thinking the right thoughts after God, of worshiping Him appropriately? Is there anything in my life that brings glory and pleasure to God? Well, these prayers are a guaranteed winner. These bring pleasure to the sight of our God and Savior. He rejoices as our Savior in our prayers for others to be saved just as we have been saved. Paul then goes on to further our understanding of the goodness of these prayers and of the pleasing nature of these prayers to God with this explanation. Who is God our Savior? Well, He, verse 4, is the one who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, before we go any further into verse 4, let me tell you that gallons and gallons of ink have been spilled on tree after tree after tree of paper dealing with verse 4. And I stand before you tonight as one who has spilled no ink on verse 4 on any paper. There are no original thoughts tonight. I should probably say that more. Nothing you're about to hear is new to me. I have gone and I have stood on the shoulders of giants of the past. My friends, they are my brothers, and they sit on my shelf to my right, kind of in the middle section. And I go and I hang out with them all week long. And I think with them. And I allow the Spirit to guide me as He guided them. And I reflect on the Word in comparison to their thoughts. And I, I am eternally grateful for their influence in my life. But there has been so much said about this verse. Now, why? Why is there a lot to be said about God desiring all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth? Well, it's simple because we know both experientially and biblically from the Word of God that all people do not come to salvation and do not come to the knowledge of the truth. So right off the bat, our minds are stretched, our curiosity is piqued, because if God desires for all people to be saved, why aren't they? So you can see the dilemma. Maybe you haven't thought of it before, but either God is powerless to accomplish what He desires, or He is somehow hindered in doing what He wants to do. Someone else is more powerful than God, or He is, in and of His own character, left powerless to accomplish His desire. And so theologians have taken time to think deeply. Now, each one of the words that causes a problem here has been diced and sliced and interpreted and worked through, and they are these. Desires. What does God mean when He says He desires? All. Does all mean all, as in every single human being, past, present, and future? And then the last one is saved. What does Paul mean when he says that God desires all people to be saved. Saved from what? In what sense is Paul speaking here? I know you're probably thinking, wow, I don't think I've ever thought about this before. Well, this is important because this is a motivation for us to be praying for the salvation of other people. So I think it's vital that we think about it a little bit technically tonight together. And we don't do this a lot, but let's think about this a little bit deeply. There is one and very valid way of understanding this, and that is that the desire of God is different 
than the purpose of God. Bear with me here, but theologically, God has decreed eternal decrees, which are His secret will. At the foundation of the world and before the foundation of the world, God had decreed that history would happen the way it happens, that Christ would come the way He came, that our days would be numbered with their number. There is an eternal decree made. The word that's used for God desiring all people to be saved is a different word. And so some have taken this and said, we are seeing here the revealed desire of God, but the desire of God and the compassion and the heart of God always come underneath the decree of God. Some of you have a headache. Some have a glazed look over your face. That helps. I know that I'm not actually getting through. God has made eternal decrees which are unmoving, and they are perfect in their unity with His character. He is untainted by them in any way. God hates sin. He is untainted by sin. And yet sin entered into the world not outside of His control and not outside of His decree. But He is in no way guilty for sin, nor does He tempt any with sin. Say, how can that be? God's decrees are the primary cause of all things. We're going to use some language here that's tricky. Secondary causes are his means to accomplish those decrees. Okay, we've got primary, which is always God. He is the first cause. The secondary cause, or the second, the second cause, is the action that actually plays out and brings about the decree of God. So if God decreed that man would fall into sin and that a Savior would be provided for his glory and for his renown, the secondary cause of his decree was first and foremost Adam and Eve and then all of us acting out as secondary causes the first cause of his decree and Christ being the secondary cause, the one who acted out his primary decree of salvation for sinners. Now here is what theologians and many others call the problem of evil. Here's a question for you. I trust this won't distract from the point of the passage. How is God, here's the problem of evil, how is God responsible as the decree, as the first cause? How is He how is he the first cause, and then how does he remain untainted by it? That's the problem of evil. How does God hold man responsible for their actions when their actions are the secondary cause of what he has decreed? Let's do an exercise. Let's nod forward if you're following at all, and let's go sideways if you're not getting... Okay, good. We've got three of you nodded forward. That's good. I'll take it. That's the problem of evil. And the problem that we face here is, is, is God actually sovereign? Is He actually powerful? Does He actually accomplish His will? So some have said, well, desire is the word we need to examine. None other than my mentor and example, John MacArthur, takes this view 
Some then move to saved and say, well, saved is the word we need to examine because God is, in fact, saving all men in some sense. In fact, he'll save his creation. He'll redeem everything in some sense. And as long as you have breath and life as a sinful person, you are being saved by the goodness of God. We call that common grace. So all men who are alive and breathing and not in hell are being saved in a very temporal sense from their eternal punishment. And unless they turn and believe and follow Christ, that salvation will have an end day and they will spend an eternity separated from God. But in some sense, temporally, all men are saved from the eternal consequence that is theirs because of their sin unless they follow Christ and believe that he is, in fact, their substitute. So, some have dealt with the word desire, some have dealt with the word saved, and I know that you're, you're following now that those were the bookends, so the middle one must be where we're going to land tonight. I think that we don't need to mess with our understanding of the word desire. I think it's difficult for us to see God's desire not matched in his will. How is his desire somehow separated from his will? And the salvation that is here because of the explanation of the salvation, which is coming to the knowledge of the truth, this is for sure speaking of the gospel salvation. This is an eternal salvation. And it will go on to explain it even in the verses ahead. So I want to take a moment to explain to you that when we read God desires all people... We can understand this based upon the context before it, the verses that came before this section, and based on the verses that come after this section. We are not to understand this as universalism, that all people will be saved, ultimately, and that there is no eternal punishment. But we are to understand this as God will rescue and desires and wills to save people from every single walk, whether they be in authority or whether they be under authority, whether they be Jews or whether they be Gentiles. God's desire is for all people to come to salvation. This would prove the true meaning in the context. I believe this supports the context strongly. God's desire for people to come to a saving understanding of the gospel is not limited by ethnic background, by social class, by cultural significance. Nothing comes into play. And you and I can say amen and thank you, Lord, that where we came from and what we grew up in and our importance or our lack of importance had nothing to do with God's desire to save us from our sin. I remember as a kid, I I came into a family that rejoiced in the gospel. The gospel was such an integral part of my upbringing. From the earliest days, we would read the scriptures together. I believe the first time my mind got some glimpse of the truth of the gospel was somewhere three and a half or four years old. I started to put the pieces together that I had a great need because I was a sinner and that Christ was the only substitute. I prayed the prayer in my four-year-old simplicity. I grew. I prayed again at seven because of my fear of eternal judgment and a developing understanding of my problem. 
Then I went on and I prayed several more times. Who could count how many times I prayed and asked Christ to save me from the time that I was 10 or 11 through a time of 15 as I feared for my life because I knew that I had no victory over sin, I had no power, and that my life was a mockery of the gospel that I had professed. And I remember hearing that once you had come to understanding, mental understanding of the gospel, and had rejected it, that there was a very good possibility that God would never again offer the gospel to you. And I remember thinking about that and thinking, boy, I hope I got it. Because if it never comes back again, I'm in big, big trouble. And I am grateful, as I know you are, many of you who grew up in a similar circumstance, that God did not take into account who my parents were. He did not take into account the exposure that I had to the gospel when at 15 He desired and He accomplished and He purposed to save me from my sin. And I was as shocked in the moment as anyone else would have been And I think I've shared this with you before. We didn't even call it salvation. I called it rededicating my life to Christ because I didn't know anything different. And as I studied the Word of God and grew, I understood that God had in fact reached in and transformed my heart. He had converted me. He had given me new life. And I'm grateful that all people fall under the category of God's divine pleasure in saving sinners. No one is excluded Universalism is not an option. This would contradict what we find in Matthew 7. You remember this fearful passage in Matthew 7. Speaking of passages that scared me as a child, this is one of them as a young person. Sorry to those of you who are 15 and thinking I just called you a child. I didn't mean it. Verse 21 says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, that being the judgment day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, this is Jesus declaring as the judge of sinners, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Surely all people will not be saved. Some will be departed from the presence of God for an eternity. Romans 8:28 affirms that God does in fact choose some to be saved. He selects some to rescue in his grace. Ephesians 1, Romans 9 all proclaim these realities. Universalism is not an option, and yet a universal call, a broad, limitless call from the gospel is the reality that affirms our prayer for people to come to know Christ. Does that make sense? When we pray for people to be saved, we can know that we are praying with the very desire of God because He desires that people from every walk, every nation, every tongue, every class be brought to Himself. The unsearchableness of His election is beyond us and only a distortion of what we find in Scripture would somehow stop sharing the Gospel and stop praying for the salvation of those who are lost. Because we do not know the mind of God, but we do know that He desires and He will save from all people. So, the limitless nature of God's compassion is the first reason that we find ourselves praying for the salvation of all people, including K 
kings and leaders and even wicked leaders who are over us. We pray for all people to be saved, for it is the desire of God to save people from all walks. There is no limit to His compassion. There is no limit to His mercy. There is no people group too hard for Him. No sinner is too sinful. No rank too high for Him to save. I know I, like you, have become accustomed to thinking thoughts of God surely would never save that person. Not that he could not, but surely he would not. Because their evil is so despicable that God surely wouldn't show grace to that person. And in the moment of those thoughts, we should be convicted of the arrogance of our hearts. Right? Because our heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And those who have outwardly expressed the internal sin of their hearts in more ways than we have, have in no way exceeded our sinfulness. It's just that their expression has been so much more matured than ours. And we ought to praise God for His grace, and we ought to pray for His grace to be evident through their salvation. Now, you say, are there other passages where all men can relate to all groups of people? Yes. Romans 5, 12-21 does speak of all men in this same sense. And even 1 Timothy 4.10 talks about the Savior of all people. The same idea is that all people groups are represented, both Jew and Gentile. And particularly in this letter, don't miss this, in this letter, here were the false teachers who wanted to be experts of the law saying, we are the sect, we are the small group. If you're in our group, you have secret knowledge, you have the truth. And Paul is countering that and saying, no, we're to pray for all people to be brought into the family of God because God desires to save people from all walks. It's not your little inclusive group, your little exclusive group. God is so much broader. He is limitless in His compassion. If that's clear as mud, then I can see you afterward or you can shoot me an email this week. Second reason, because we're almost out of time, that we should be praying for the salvation of all people, no matter their situation, no matter their background, even for kings and leaders. The second reason, not only the limitless nature of his compassion, but the limitless value of his sacrifice. Not only the limited nature of God's compassion, he is broad in his offer of salvation. Today is the day of salvation for all who are alive, but also the limitless value of the sacrifice that He gave in Christ. And we find this in verse 5. Further explanation, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, that's all of us, sinners, the man, who is the mediator, the man, the Messiah, Jesus, Christ, Jesus, So there are a multitude of peoples. There are a multitude of nations. There are a multitude of tongues and circumstances, but there's only one God. That's the contrast. The variety is endless when it comes to people. And the variety is limited to one when it comes to saviors, mediators, to stand between a holy God and sinful men. There is only one possible go-between for sinners. Today. 
There's an offended God. He's holy. He's perfect. And sinners are rampant in His creation. And He is highly offended and He will punish their sin. And only one, only one can step in and say, Father, this one is mine. This one is covered. This one has been atoned for. This one is saved. There's only one to whom the Father will look and see the righteousness of Christ in us as sinners. Now, this has some big-time application for our lives because the exclusive nature of the Gospel and this statement of one God, one mediator, the exclusive nature of this statement is completely intolerant today. The name of the game today is tolerance. It's our postmodern culture. It's what we live in. There are no absolutes. Everybody's got their own truth. And hey, if your truth is your truth and it gets you where you need to be, then great. I'm glad it works for you. You'll hear people say that to you. Hey, I don't believe the gospel, but I'm glad it worked out for you. Which leaves us with a very offensive message. It didn't just work for me. It's the only it's the only hope. It's the only message. So in a world that is tolerant of everything except intolerance, where everything is accepted except those who don't accept everything, we are left with this message and this reality. And it should fuel our prayer life. It should fuel our desire for God to save sinners because we know that there is only one way to God. In fact, that brings to mind a little tiny book. If you're not a reader, but you'd like to say, I read a book, you can get this book. It's probably 28 pages, 30 pages. 28, I just came up with that. 28 pages. Uh, It's called Only One Way. How many of you have seen or read the book Only One Way? Good. That's a book that will encourage you to stand in this message. There's only one mediator. And that's a fearful thing to say to people. Are you telling me that your God is the only way that your Christ, your Messiah, your Savior is the only way to God generically? The answer is yes. There's only one true God. He's Yahweh God of the Old Testament. He's the Father. And there's only one mediator, the Son, who is the man Christ Jesus. Now look at the limitless value of this one Christ Jesus, this mediator for us, this Savior of sinners. And this will be where we wrap up this evening. Verse 6 says, Jesus Christ gave himself a ransom as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Christ willingly gave himself to pay with his own body, his own death. He paid the ransom to get us out of slavery. Now this is not a foreign picture and I don't think I really need to elaborate on this much because there are enough ransom notes out there today, enough incidents in the news where we've seen kidnapping for a ransom that you get this picture and that's exactly what this means. You and I as sinners were born into slavery and Christ as the sacrifice paid the ransom with his own body, his own blood, his death. He paid the ransom to free us. There was a price on our head. The price of sin on our head, the wage of sin, was what? Death. That was the ransom note. 
You want to get this one back? Somebody has to die. Not just somebody. The perfect Lamb of God must step in and pay the ransom. The righteousness of God in human form, which we read in John 1, must be the one who steps in to pay the price. So Christ willingly gave himself. The ransom was paid in full and covered the sins of all who would believe. Now, let's take just a moment before we're done. I am desperately trying to be on time tonight. Let's take just a moment and let's think about the ransom, the atonement that was paid for our sin. Jesus gave himself as a payment for all. That's the statement that we have to work with. Which is the testimony, at the end of the verse, given at the proper time. In other words, we didn't know about it until God ordained that we know about it. We knew about it when the Word became flesh. And the mystery of Christ's work and the mystery of Gentiles being included and the mystery of the church, all of that was revealed in Him at the proper time. That's the testimony given at the proper time. Let's back up to the ransom for all. When we speak of the salvation from our sin, of the ransom being paid, when we pray for the salvation of all people, it needs to be wrapped up in this little phrase, He paid a ransom for all. And let's understand this. Turn over to 1 John chapter 2 and let's look at a verse that's familiar to some tonight. 1 John chapter 2. Hang a right. In fact, you can go all the way to the end of your Bible and come backwards if you haven't been in the book of Revelation in a while. Want to come through the back door? Right before Jude, we find first, second, and third John. Go to First John, chapter two. Verse one says, "My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate, we have a mediator with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation. That's an Old Testament word for the covering that would be sprinkled on the altar." The blood of the lambs and goats would be sprinkled on the altar. He is the propitiation for our sin. His blood covers it. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So in other words, the propitiation that was made through Christ's death and His sacrifice, the scope of which, or the value of it, is limitless. There's a little phrase that maybe you've seen in your study Bible or you've heard or you've read before that is good for us to think of when we think of the ransom for all, the propitiation for the whole world. God's sacrifice in Jesus Christ was sufficient to pay the full penalty of sin for all people. But it will be effective only for those who believe. In other words, Christ has not paid the full penalty for sin in the same way in the same sense, for both unbelieving and believing people. Was it great enough to cover all people? Absolutely. Is it sufficient if all were to come to faith? Yes. Is it effective? It is effective only for those who believe. Sufficient for all, effective for the elect. God's sacrifice in Christ was a ransom paid In other words, all the funds that could be in the bank to pay off sin's debt are there. And whether all people came to faith in Christ, his death would be sufficient. If only one was to come to faith in Christ, his death would be sufficient. His ransom has made 
salvation available to all, and yet it will be effective only for those who believe. This ought to encourage us. The limitless nature of his compassion, that God has extended the gospel call not just to the Jewish people, but to Gentiles alike, not just to important people, but to those who are lowly alike, not just to those from certain families, but to all people, ought to encourage us to pray that God would save sinners, all the while acknowledging that we do not know the mystery of his choosing of who will come and who will not. Second encouragement should be the limitless value of his sacrifice, right? The ransom has been paid in full. It is broad enough. It is sufficient to cover any debt. There is no one that you could pray for that wouldn't have the potential of being saved from their sin. You could not pray for someone that God, in hearing your prayer, would say, well, we ran out of ransom yesterday, so I'm sorry I won't be able to answer that. Christ's sacrifice was limitless in its value, and it is limited in its effect. We're three minutes over. Let's finish. Okay, let's go down and let's finish. Verse 6 and verse 7, or verse 7 only. For this I was appointed a preacher and apostle. I'm telling the truth. I am not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and in truth. And here is the last and final point, and this is really just wrapped up in Paul's testimony. Not only the limitless nature of his compassion, the limitless value of his sacrifice, but the third and final point we see here, the reason that we pray is the limitless scope of the offer of the gospel. So the limitless scope of his offer Paul's calling was the further was further proof of the heart of God and the value of Christ's death. Paul was called to minister the gospel to the Gentiles. This is radical, folks. We've so become accustomed to the Gentile gospel. But for Paul to be called as a preacher, as a proclaimer, a herald for God, and to be called as an apostle specifically for the ministry of the word to the Gentiles was radical. This was the fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise that through his seed, that being Christ ultimately, all nations would be blessed. Salvation would be offered and extended to all people. And so we really begin back, or we end right back where we began. There is a limitless scope in the ministry of the word, even to us who are Gentiles. The promise to Abraham is now fulfilled. So, we are to be about prayer for the salvation of sinners. Grace Church, Adam Bailey, you, I don't want to go start naming names, are responsible to be praying for sinners to come to faith in Christ. And I stand before you guilty of not praying faithfully, effectually, fervently, passionately for the salvation of sinners. All people, whether it be my family, those that I love and know, whether it be those that I've never seen and could never communicate with because they speak a different language, whether it be someone who is a bum on the street who I look at and think I can't relate at all, whether it be the highest leaders of our land and our state and even our government here in the valley. We're to be praying because God's compassion is limitless, the value of Christ's sacrifice is limitless, and the scope of the offer is limitless.
While we do not know the electing purposes of God and who will come and who will not come, we can pray with confidence because we know that we are praying in line with God's will when we pray for the salvation of sinners. Now, you may be tempted tonight, this is where we started, to think poorly of the one true God. Why can't he save or why didn't he choose to save everyone? Why not hinder sin from ever being present? Why allow it to even happen? Why hold man accountable for his sin when he's born in sin? And only grace influencing his will could turn him from sin. Why do these things, God? Turn to Romans chapter 9 and we'll conclude our study together in Romans chapter 9. Had some sweet fellowship with brother and sister in Christ this week and the Spirit brought this passage to mind and we read it together and I think it's fruitful for our time tonight. Verse 19 of Romans chapter 9 says, Who will say to me then, what does, why does he, that being God, still find fault? For who can resist his will? In other words, if we're born this way, and if God chooses who will be saved, how can he find fault? Let the Lord speak through verse 20 to your heart if you are doubting the good and sovereign control of our God. But who are you, O man and O woman, to answer back to God? Will that which is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the lump, out of the same lump, one vessel for honorable use and one or another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us? whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Who are we to challenge the inscrutable ways of the Creator God? Who are we as the pot to demand an explanation of why and how from the potter? I always think of the illustration of Awana. Since when does the Awana car argue with you for the style with which you made the Iwana car. Why did I get these wheels? These are never going to win the race. Why red? I was red last year. I would have preferred to be blue. That's ludicrous. And yet, in some sense, if we challenge God, we challenge His thinking, we demand an answer of Him, it is just as foolish on our part. May we go from our time tonight be a praying church. Not for our own needs, not just for knees and ankles and for pneumonia and cancer. Those are all valid things that we should be praying for. But let us be known as a church that prays for the greatest need of all people. That being a savior from sin. No matter rank, class, ethnicity, no matter the case. And as we pray, let's be confident that God will use us as instruments in the Redeemer's hands. Useful pots in the hands of the potter. For the glory of God the Father, through the exaltation of the Son, as we declare the Gospel, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, as we see lives changed by the power of the Word.